Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For the market, we have a really interesting situation. High yield has been decently bid over the last couple of weeks because the Fed has stepped in at a time when the energy sector is increasingly under pressure. So what do you do if you're an investor? Well, listen to this from Jefferies. The Fed is in danger of making the skill set of investors in credit redundant if the game only becomes front-running the next area of debt the Fed is going to buy. Let's have that conversation right now, shall we, with Jim Kerrin, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Jim, great to catch up with you, sir. Your thoughts on that quote? High yield, looking dicey with crude rolling over, looking okay with the Fed ready to step in. Yeah, so, you know, for me, this is a question of, of insolvency issues and, and liquidity problems. So, one of the things that we've said over and over and over again is that with the coronavirus, there's, there's created some liquidity problems. We don't want them to turn into a solvency problem. But I do understand the moral hazard aspect of if you are in a business that is a very hypercyclical business, like an energy style business, um, and that's obviously going to be a large percentage of the high yield universe. And if it takes high yield lower, do we always need the Fed to come in and run and support it? And I think that the answer is it depends. Do we want to have oil companies in the U.S.? How important is that in, into the future? And then how do you triage that? Do you, do you pick the best or do you have a way of determining what metric is, you know, which company should survive and which shouldn't? Look, in the IG markets, what we said is as of March 22nd, if you were investment grade, um, and you were triple B minus or better, and you felt, and if you fall all the way down to double B minus, the Fed will still support those bonds. So yes, there is a little bit of regulatory arbitrage here, where if these sectors do start to come under a fair amount of pressure, that this might create some Fed or some type of government support facility. Um, I think what's important is that that gets triaged to just the strongest. It can't just be a ubiquitous cover-all blanket of, oh, don't worry, we're just going to buy high yield no matter what, or energy sector no matter what. I think the, the more important aspect of this is that there has to be a triage as to which companies get the benefit and which don't. All right. So we're talking should. Let's talk will and let's talk positioning. A lot of people that I've spoken to are saying perhaps the rally in junk bonds has gotten a little ahead of itself. Jim, do you agree? Well, I mean, it, it did for technical reasons, just because the double B minuses are going to be bought, you know, with the fallen angels from from the investment grade space. So, so yes, I, I I would agree that it took the whole index up. There's a large chunk of it that is very very vulnerable to the energy sector. So, a phrase that we use is which securities are inside the tent and which securities are outside of the tent. The securities that are outside of the tent are, which means the the tent of policy support, which a lot of it is the high yield sector, in particular in in, in the energy sector, and when you see oil prices fall this way, this is going to create a a lot of stress. So I don't know that the Fed can actually do very, very much about this because look, what's going on here is we have a drop in global demand. OPEC is not what it used to be in terms of regulating oil prices. So we go back to oil being a boom bust business like it always was. You know, you have oil run up to very, very high prices and a lot of people get in the business and then it goes crashing down. A lot of people fall out of the business. And it's a very highly cyclical commodity that was, you know, pretty much kept in check by OPEC for a long period of time. But now that's gone. So at this point, now it's just the real true supply and demand dynamics, which can be brutal. Um, so investors beware. If you're going to buy, make sure you get a good enough discount to actually take this risk. And that's the key. 
But um, in the interim, I, I think that there are some companies, and it's tied to employment as well, that might need some <clears throat> solvency support at, at, at this point. Jim Karen, you mentioned inside the tent. Are retirees inside the tent? So that's a great question, right? So, so retirees per se are, are, are not necessarily, right? So we're talking about sectors in, in specific securities. But you're right, Tom. Tom, we, we can extend this out to moral hazard lengths and say, okay, who should be saved? Who shouldn't be saved? And once we get started, when do we stop? And I'm, I'm, I'm very, very much in favor of, of, of free markets. And I, I'm also you know, very much in favor of what the Fed does to stabilize markets as well. So what's also critical is that this is temporary and it's targeted. So temporary and targeted are are two things that need to be there. And also there has to be a a triage of, you know, stronger balance sheets. And, you know, there's got to be a cutoff line where if if you had a strong balance sheet and that you're being unduly affected because of the coronavirus, then then that's, you know, then, then maybe you should get some support. But if it's just that, hey, you're in a cyclical business and somebody invested in this uh, business, then, you know, you're gonna, you, you, know you took the risk and, and that's what this is. Um, so there are going to be losers and there are going to be some winners. Um, and that's our job is to try to figure out what sectors are going to be the winners and losers. At the start of the year, Jim, to be clear with all of our audience, you were far more conservative versus the rest of the street and became far more constructive versus the rest of the street over the last month or so behind this market rip that we've seen over the last several weeks. Can you talk to us about why you're so willing to price in a better future when the data around us tells us a story of gloom and doom for the next several months? Yeah, I mean, effectively, we're looking forward, right? And, and we're trying to figure out what the market's discounting and, and how much is actually in the price right now. And, and look, I mean, it, the biggest piece of the puzzle that's still missing is what the path of this virus is and, and does it create another shutdown in the economy and what have you. But if we go on the operating assumption that it doesn't, and if we start to look towards recovery, then we can start to look at certain asset classes. I'm, I'm in fixed income, so I'm going to look at places like investment grade. I'm going to look at some of the higher... Uh, um, credit qualities within securitized and even some of the double B's within high yield in the healthcare sector and industrial sector and paper packaging and, you know, other things of, 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 of that area that I think are more real broad economy stories. And I think that when I look at the high yield index or when I look at the investment grade index and I watch spreads go out to almost 400 basis points over, to me, that's too much. Now, recently spreads have come in, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite significantly, and maybe it's gone a little too far and, and it might set back. But the point is, is that as long as we start to stabilize and we get the third quarter recovery, fourth quarter recovery, we're writing off the first and second quarter, then I think that earnings um, start to come back and default risks ultimately start to fall. High yield default risks are in double digits, low double digits, like 12, 13%, depending on who you talk to and which ratings agencies that you're looking at. Um, that may be a relevant statistic if we look at the energy sector, but it might not be relative when we look at it very idiosyncratically, name by name, bond by bond. And that's why it's so important right now, Jonathan, that we start to think much more idiosyncratically, much more of a stock picker or bond pickers type of a market as opposed to broad index plays. Because if you buy the index, you're going to buy a large chunk of things you just don't want. So to be selective is a lot more is, is a lot more of what this market is calling for. Jim, always great to catch up with you, sir. Jim Karen there, Morgan Stanley Investment Management, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. 
It would be important to go to the optimist on Europe who's so gloomy now. I can't believe we let him on air. Eric Nielsen joins us uh, with Unicredit, usually very optimistic. And Eric, I was thunderstruck by your note and your caution on the European economic experiment through 2020. What's the distinction here? Why are you so much gloomier than others? Because I think the, this shutdown by governments, this is a man-made recession for good reasons, obviously, for the health reasons. But this is something we've never seen before that, that I'm aware of. And if you just go through the sectors and think about what basically has been shut down, I find it impossible not to conclude that we at least get a few months of very, very deep contraction, uh, 30% or thereabout. And if you get that, even with a strong recovery in the second half of the year, you get these kind of average 2020 GDP numbers. We are forecasting for Europe 13% down, the U.S. 10% down. It's almost impossible not to get these type of numbers. Eric, the ECB is coming in big, acting quite aggressively. Can you explain to me why the Italian bond market is moving in the other direction on a morning like this morning? No, I can't really, but uh, it, it is ultimately, a, as you said just before I got on, that, that it is a, a revival of this fear about the Eurozone. Um, I think it is misplaced. Uh, but to be honest, I find the Italian government is not doing itself a favor by, by sounding so anti-European at a time when the ECB is buying all that debt. I mean, there is, this is the debt issue is not an issue at the time, right? Because the ECB is there, and that is common debt. So it's so I I, I fail to to see the excitement. Uh, and again, as you said, I mean the actual interest rates are absurdly low. The spreads are widening, but but the bonds are deep negative, right? So it's a, so debt sustainability for me is not a big risk here. Just to clarify, so you don't think that the concept that the euro region will break up or that there won't be some sort of backstop to the currency uh, in its existence, you think that those worries are overblown and, and not realistic, but you do think that the responses will be insufficient to stave off a very deep and prolonged recession within Europe. Is that correct? Uh, yes, until the last statement you said. I don't think this recession is going to be long. It's going to be deep, but very brief. Uh, so we are talking about a quarter or two, and then we probably, hopefully, see some growth again. And, and, and then, but I don't think we get back to normal until, you know, we get a vaccine or therapeutical treatment or something of the disease, obviously. But I, but I, uh, but I don't think it's a deep and long one. And yes, debt-to-GDP ratios will, will rise significantly. But guess what? If you're paying 1% or 2% on your debt, then 170% of the GDP or whatever doesn't cost you more than what 100% cost you a few years ago, right? It depends how this market's going to treat you, though, Eric, and that's not up to you or I, although you might have some influence on that. Looking at the situation, back to normal, what's normal for Italy? And I don't mean to sound snarky, but as we know, it is something very near to stagnation. Not much growth at all. Right. We could have a debt-to-GDP balance of what? 150%, let's say, when we come out of this, Eric, in a place like Italy. Do you not worry that those kind of numbers could spark that kind of aggressive repricing of Italian debt? Because let's be clear, Italian debt is not exactly being treated like developed market debt in an environment like this one. It's something like a hybrid between EM and DM. And if the debt fundamentals go against you, Eric, you know how quickly this can unravel. Yes. 
This I agree with. This is, so I think you put your finger exactly in the right spot. The number one issue for Italy is where growth goes once we are through the trough. If you assume that, the, that they recover broadly along other European countries, even if like a half a percent lower than others like they've done before, I don't see mm-hmm. the big drama. But if Italy were to underperform more substantially and for some period of time, we have a problem on our hands. But until then, and this is certainly for the yeah. next year or so, the ECB is there and buying basically everything. You're right. If investors say, you know what, we don't really care, and, and I'm not persuasive enough to, to tell them otherwise, if they leave, then Italy faces the same problem as every single country or company right. or person faces that needs to refinance his debt. You can't do it if people don't want to buy your debt, period, right? Whispers over the weekend, Eric Nielsen, of worries of inflation somewhere out there. Inflation will reign supreme. Baloney. We've got deflation and disinflation right now. How pronounced will the deflation and disinflation be, given your forecast? I don't think, Tom, that it's going to be that pronounced because, again, my forecast is a, is a quarter or two, and that doesn't drive inflation or deflation longer term. I'll say this for sure. We get big relative price changes, and I think we just already start to see them now. But the big debate out there is whether all this money printing in Europe and America elsewhere would be inflationary or deflationary. Um, obviously, normally, money printing will ultimately become inflationary, but I don't think that's a risk either, really. And the reason is that I think, on average, governments, both in America and in Europe, are still not doing enough to overpower this, this slowdown. So, so, so we are at risk of very little inflation right. for the next few years. It's a measurement of percent of GDP, and I totally take your point, Eric, but on a percent of GDP, what's the appropriate ratio if 2 or 4% of GDP is not getting it done? The, sorry, this is with regard to the debt or to the deficits or what? No, the, the amount of fiscal stimulus, you know, it's measured ah. quickly as they're doing 2% right. or 4% of GDP. Right. What's the appropriate all-in number? Right. So, rule 15? of thumb, Tom, yeah, so, so the rule of thumb is that if you get hit by an by a external shock of a type, you should do a fiscal stimulus as a percent of GDP, roughly equivalent to the drop in GDP. That's a multiplier Thank of one, you. right? Now, remember, while Italy is only doing a little bit, they are doing about 20% of GDP in guarantees for companies. So that counts for quite a lot also. So you keep... you. you Try to prevent the liquidity crisis from becoming a solvency crisis in the corporate sector. So that, so it, so I still think they're doing too little. And, and as we speak, they're working feverishly, as we know in Rome, on another package of fiscal stimulus. So, so more is coming. Yeah. Eric, just taking a step back, you said that you think that this is going to be a very deep but short recession. I'm wondering when John says, what's the new normal? And I'm wondering not just for Italy, but the entire Eurozone when it comes to the unemployment rate, which already was a lot higher than the one in the U.S. heading into this in 2019. Last year, it was 7.6 percent on average for the Eurozone, forecast to be 9 percent for this year, but obviously going to be much higher. What's the new normal for unemployment in in Europe? Oh, God, this is a tough one, and I don't know the answer, but I think the, the uh, so we very roughly estimate that once we are through this deep trough, we may have carved maybe a quarter percentage point off potential growth in Europe. 
uh, because companies will fail, unfortunately, that shouldn't fail. Uh, and that will lift the natural unemployment level a bit. Now, can I just, before we get on to this, also remind you the, 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 the key reason for the very big difference in unemployment in Europe and in America over the last few years is that in Europe, we have had a massive inflow into the labor market, people wanting to get jobs, but didn't get them fully, particularly in Spain and some other Southern European countries, where in America, you have had people leaving the labor market. So if you adjusted for that, go 10, back, 10 years back or something, the changes in the, in, in the labor market size, then it's actually, actually quite similar, to be honest. Eric, we've got to leave it there. I hope you and the family are doing well. Great to catch up with you this morning. Eric Nilsson there, Unigradic Croup, Chief Economist. An update, as we have tried to do each day, from our medical community, the experts that have helped us uh, during this pandemic. One of them is Joshua Sharfstein. He is at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, we must mention Mr. Bloomberg is founder of Bloomberg LP and also this television and radio uh, network as well. It was fun to talk to him today about the improvements that we're seeing in this pandemic. Here is Professor Joshua Scharfstein. What we have seen uh, recently in the United States is a plateau, and that is uh, good news because we clearly were worried about having so many people with severe disease from COVID that it would overwhelm the healthcare system. And there's no question that the healthcare system in several places, such as New York City, has been pushed really up to the mm-hmm. brink, but there's just been an amazing uh, medical response and extra beds and ventilators and staff coming in. And it looks like the line there is, is more or less um, holding, and these hospitals are not getting a bump. So that is a very good news. However, um, it does not mean that, you know, it's all over. It means that really the long-term battle is beginning, and um, <clears throat> it's very important that not only the current restrictions continue long enough for cases to really begin to decline, but also that um, we right. have a strategy for slowly reopening mm-hmm. the economy. I had a family member over the weekend, uh, Professor Sharfstein, who took in the information of a nurse of about age 40 dying. Why are nurses dying? Why are doctors dying? Well, this has been seen all around the world, including in China and Italy and Spain. and. Um, it may have to do with the fact that uh, they were exposed to a very large amount of virus, perhaps uh, before um, you know it was uh, known that there was coronavirus in their area, or when they were um, uh, unable to get adequate protective equipment. And uh, the amount of virus someone's exposed to generally can influence how well people can fight off the infection. So that's one possible reason uh, why. The other reason is um, that there is a certain randomness to this virus. Um, There are people in the community who seem um, completely uh, at low risk based on what we know, but nonetheless, they get seriously ill or even die. So, you know, this is not a guaranteed harmless infection for anyone. Could this be genetic? I know there are a number of studies um, Josh, about w- whether you have a, a, a pre-genetic disposition for, for the virus to get worse. 
Where are we on that? It's possible. I haven't seen any like uh, compelling data specifying which you know genes. Sometimes there are variations in the immune system that can predict vulnerabilities to infection. So. You know, I think that uh, would be very um, interesting if, if it's uncovered. I know you were saying that we need to be vigilant against a new surge of cases as we start to lift restrictions. What would be the right way to do this? It, it, do you take a state and the state reopens and you see what happens? Or do you look at another country? Are, are you know, countries and states comparable in, in how the response has been, how the lockdown has been, and the number of deaths and infections? So I think there are two things, and there's a, been a couple of very good reports that um, have been put out, including by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Um, and the first thing is you have to think about what are the conditions for reopening? What do you want to have in place before we reopen? And the second thing is how do you go about it? And in that first category, what do you want to have in place? Adequate testing, which we don't really yet have, to really be able to test people who are sick, even mildly ill. Um, as well as enough testing for high-risk places like nursing homes. You'd certainly want to see cases declining substantially for 14 days. Um, you, want to, you need the public health capacity to respond to positive cases, and you need to make sure that that healthcare system that's been pushed to the brink in some areas has really bounced back so that you're able, if things go get worse, to handle the, the challenge. And then you got to think about how you're going to open up, and it's not going to be flipping the switch back on. It's going to be slowly turning the dial, and you need to really think through um, what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, and then between each stage, waiting to make sure that you're not sparking a surge in cases. And you know, um, there's some things that may be able to come first, like if there are workplaces where people don't sit anywhere near each other, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but then there are things that are going to come later, like a big indoor concert that may come the latest of all. So you really need to be thoughtful about that. I think you're starting to see in the United States framework yeah. uh, being discussed by governors. Um, and I think that will be the roadmap that people follow. Joshua Sharfstein, professor at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Johns Hopkins University, with Francine Lacroix and myself this morning, uh, is well, most, most informative. Right now, Gideon Rose with us with a monthly uh, review of his wonderful magazine, Foreign Affairs. Anybody that listens to this show knows I adore the magazine, particularly that the font's actually big so you can read it uh, (laughs) with these old eyes. Um, This time around, a wonderful, important issue on the fire next time. And, of course, this is on the climate change or climate catastrophe uh, debate. With that said... Gideon Rose and his team have led with a spectacular foreign affairs website looking at the pandemic. Gideon, I want to get one question in on your wonderful new issue before I know Paul wants to get up to date with your thoughts on the pandemic. And that is, with the collapse in oil prices, isn't it that much harder to affect climate change? So in one sense, absolutely, which is all sorts of projects that were based on the economic viability uh, or doing other kinds of things are are set back and there's less change and so forth. On the other hand, what we are seeing in real time is a great public education lesson in the consequences of mass small changes in individual behavior. There are environmental consequences and actions comparable to hand washing or mask wearing. And just as people now understand the logic that connects their individual behavior to their personal health, that could easily become something that makes climate policy 
more plausible in the future because we now understand global problems need to be addressed globally, and we understand that our connection to that global problem and the consequences for everybody, whether that will translate into actual political behavior, probably not in the short term, but in the longer term, this will make constructive action to prepare for and solve crises more likely to happen rather than less, I believe, even with climate. So, Gideon, I guess one of my concerns as I think about climate change and the world we're living in now, it, it takes a big, big, I guess it just gets put on the back burner in a big way. People are just trying to survive. They're trying to deal with this virus. They're trying to think about what it means for their lives, what the post-coronavirus world looks like. And I'm concerned that, you know, climate change, even with the younger generation where they're really passionate about it, may just be put on the back burner. Is there concern that it loses some of the momentum? So I think that obviously would be true for a lot of the activism. And, and I think what you're talking about is something that many people fear. But as our issue points out, as the articles in it point out, what really matters now is not mass collective action, is not mass political pressure even, which is not really going to materialize, but wise policy to basically change the course, to flatten the curve, of the climate disaster that's looming. And that kind of stuff is equivalent to the oh. public health measures we would have wanted our authorities to take in the months and years before the real pandemic right. hit. And those kinds of things can still happen if wise technocrats get entrusted with power. Gideon, I'm looking at it right now. Now, there was the, the shots of L.A. this week, and I saw out in the you know, Twitter sphere, and there was a wonderful, hilarious shot that with the way the air is cleaned up with this pandemic, you can see Sydney from New York. <laughs> that was hilarious. But I'm looking out right now, Gideon, at a pretty fancy view of a crystal clear New York. I mean, we're getting a lesson right now in this. Within all of the research you do at Foreign Affairs, what is holding us back from the common sense here? It's just market functions, isn't it? That yeah, hydrocarbon-like you know, engines still are cost-effective. You're absolutely correct. These are market failures that can be addressed through wise public policy at the local and the national and the international and global level. And what we lay out in the magazine is a whole variety of things. You have Will, uh, Bill Nordhaus, Nobel Prize winning economist, explaining why you need to go to a club membership model for international agreements rather than the sort of ones yeah. that you currently have that allow free riding. And you have everything from that to why but businesses <clears throat> and individuals can do. But most importantly, if you think of this basically as, do we want to empower going forward the people like Fauci <clears throat> and Burks and the ones who we think of as good public health technocrats, there are people like that on climate as well. And there are policies that could be followed now that don't involve shutting down the entire world. The question is, will we be able to direct government action, scientific research and policy to do the equivalence of surging on testing in climate-related areas, to do the equivalent of development of vaccines speeding up for climate-related green technologies. You could have a massive government program that would be worthwhile, not simply as a jobs program or as a politically correct thing, but as something that generated the kind of solutions to the crisis that could head off the worst outcome. That's what I'm hoping for. Whether we'll see it or not is anybody's guess. So, Gideon, in all the wonderful reporting of Foreign Affairs magazine, what is kind of the, the takeaway from 
some of the government response to this virus. Uh, it's kind of, you know, you go from China for just a complete lockdown to the U.S., which it seems to be state by state by state, and some of the European economies have been differing in their, uh, I guess, their severity of their lockdowns. What's kind of the takeaway that you're seeing here as this situation develops? That's a great question. You know, I was rereading the issue and all of our coverage of the pandemic uh, before this appearance, and I managed to depress myself even more <laughs> because the more I look around, the more I see uh, the, uh, government failure and leadership failure in so many areas, in so many regions, at so many levels. And yes, of course, there are wonderful cases of successes, uh, and we all want to be like South Korea. But what's notable about the South Koreas and places like that, as a few of them that there are, is how few they are and how unrealizable you could imagine that being uh, in, uh, in a place like the United States. And so many countries have done badly, but I'm now wondering, the really interesting question is not who's going to do well, it's whose regime is so brittle that it will not survive the crisis. Here on Bloomberg, you understand that there are a lot of companies that had a lot of debt that were zombie companies or problem companies, and those are the ones who are going to be the biggest casualties of the crisis economically because they're not going to be strong enough to survive. Lots of regimes are going to be facing a reckoning when their publics finally embrace the full cost of what's happening and how poorly their leaders performed. And when that happens, some regimes will be able to respond and yeah. renew themselves, and some won't. And that's the interesting thing to watch. Everybody is going to do badly. Whose regime will survive the winnowing that will come now that the tide has run yeah. out? Always eclectic. Your magazine has a wonderful article from two from another time and place, Secretary Baker and Secretary Schultz and their team, uh, an, an aged view, a, a view from the Washington consensus. How do they treat the new populism, the death of multilateralism we've seen in James Baker and George Schultz's world? Well, uh, Baker and Schultz, writing with Ted Halstead, argue that you can actually see climate change as an opportunity, not just a threat, not just a problem, because the United States is already at the forefront of green technology and has the kind of system that could generate the answers. And so they argue using government constructively to advance and build on the American lead and make the United States a pioneer in this kind of thing. By the way, we have an article in the same issue by John Podesta and Todd Stern, who handled climate policy in the Obama administration, arguing for a whole set of what policies would make sense for climate that is broadly in sync. So you have bipartisan support for a kind of policy that would be a constructive climate policy that would not involve self-sacrifice mm -hmm. and austerity, but, but right. impossible, you know, but positive change. Well, Gideon Rose, congratulations on an important issue in climate change and your website on the pandemic has been absolutely superb. Foreign Affairs Magazine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.